hppodcraft.com. Editor's Note Alonzo Hasbrook Typer of Kingston, New York, was last seen and recognized on April 17, 1908, around noon at the Hotel Richmond in Batavia. He was the only survivor of an ancient Ulster County family and was 53 years old at the time of his disappearance. Mr. Typer was educated privately and at Columbia and Heidelberg Universities. All his life was spent as a student. The field of his research is including many obscure and generally feared borderlands of human knowledge. His papers on vampirism, ghouls, and poltergeist phenomena were privately printed after rejection by many publishers. The diary herewith presented was allegedly found in the ruins of a large country house near Attica, New York, which had borne a curiously sinister reputation for generations before its collapse. The edifice was very old, antedating the general white settlement of the region, and had formed the home of a strange and secretive family named Vanderheil, which had migrated from Albany in 1746 under a curious cloud of witchcraft suspicion. The structure probably dated from about 1760. Those were some selections from the first few paragraphs of The Diary of Alonzo Typer by H.P. Lovecraft and William Lumley. Intriguing. I'm excited. Who are you? I'm Chris Lackey. I'm uh, the co-host of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And who are you? Uh, I am Chad Pfeiffer, and we're here at hppodcraft.com. First, I want to do a correction before we get into this story. Okay. Two weeks ago, Chad, you were talking about the guys from Mad Max Road Warrior being rough trade and uh, you were talking about that and then i threw out rough trade as you did what i believed it to be called no uh and we were corrected on that yeah right and, yeah and, a listener and, came uh, uh, call, uh, wrote, called he didn't call in he wrote in and said i love the show but that's not what rough trade is and and explained right. well, to us what is what is rough trade so rough trade is well, now there's a whole long history with trade in general trade is is a victorian phrase they think it was polarian origin which meant mm-hmm somebody would get with uh, somebody else for for money, but not necessarily getting paid for it, but to hang out with them so they can kind of mooch off of their uh, being wealthy. Typically, oh, this okay. would be a gay man, and then mm-hmm. he would hang out with a, a less well-off, some, sometimes straight man, but not necessarily mm-hmm. straight man, that would hang out with a gay man so that he could eat at nice restaurants and, and uh, you know live, live in a nice place, all that stuff. Yeah. Sure. So that I mean, this is old. You know, this is an old, old type of thing. Now, rough trade is a more modern uh, thing, and that usually means the guy who is cruising, cruising for another, another dude. This dude is very masculine and mm. and kind of thuggish, and will the guy who's doing doing the cruising. No, no, the the guy that's getting picked up. Oh, okay. The guy who's getting picked up. Now, sometimes it's for money, not necessarily for money. It could just be no, no. I'm sorry. It is for money. That does this for does this for money. He gets with the gay the gay guy. Supposedly he's straight, and uh, okay. And then he will, uh, you know, have sex with him. But mm-hmm. there's this kind of danger involved because the guy is very manly. He's not he's not girly. He's right. you know, like very kind of working class tough guy. And yeah. there, there is supposed to be some kind of excitement in the fact of you don't know whether this guy is going to have sex with you or beat you up. Right. Or okay. both. Or both. You know, who knows? So that's where the rough would come. That's where the rough comes in from the rough trade. But well, it, you said a minute ago, you said it was of Polari origin? Yeah. Now, Polari... I don't know what... 
that's that's like this old um, cant slang that was used um, in Britain mostly by actors, circus performers, criminals, prostitutes, showmen. So it's kind of it slang. It was basically okay. the slang. It has nothing to do with Polaris. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with Polaris. No, trying um, to bring bring it back around here. <laughs> Polari is actually um, it, it derives from uh, parlay, which is to talk. Oh, okay. And that's where it comes from. Parlez-vous. So, correction made. I just find that, I find all subcultures interesting that there are these languages and and ideas and practices that go on, and most of us are completely unaware of it, and I think it's really cool. And that's a good introduction to this story, actually, which is about obscure and generally feared borderlands of human knowledge and the people who are specialists in that. Our protagonist of the story is this guy Mm -hmm. named Alonzo Typer. Alonzo is from New York, and he studies occult stuff around the world. That's right. And those opening paragraphs were read by Jason Lee, sometimes goes by Jackson Lee. He's a good friend of mine. Folks who watch anime might know him. He's done a ton of titles. Read or Die was a movie that I oh, did a voice yeah. for that he was in. And also Dead Leaves was one. Uh, yeah, Dead Leaves is weird. Dead Leaves is very weird. But I got to play a character in that name 666, which is That's the greatest badass. thing to have listed on your IMDb page ever. <laughs> Jason's really good. Got a great voice. And so I was glad he could join us for the show finally. I interrupted, though. You were saying this is our kind of uh, ghost researcher, Alonzo Typer. Yeah, but not just ghosts. I mean, he's into vampires. He's into ghouls. Mm-hmm. He's any supernatural monster creature kind of thing. Even the other academic people don't deal with him anymore. He resigned from the Society for Psychical Research in 1902. They, even they thought he was a little out there. It's an odd protagonist for Lovecraft. He usually has academics that are wildly interested in supernatural types of things, but you rarely hear about them writing papers on vampires. It could be that this is, because this is William Lumley, this is a, a, right. a team-up. Now, William Lumley Lumley was basically, as far as I can tell, he was illiterate. I, he couldn't really write very well at oh, all. Okay. And so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he could write basically, but not not really. Joshi keeps saying that, that this guy was just sort of a really, really, really bad writer, even in the most yeah. basic sense. Lovecraft was just a fan of his, liked him as a guy, even though he was sort of nuts. Yeah. So this guy, William Lumley, and I don't know how much, because we get a lot of this from letters. And so I don't know how much of it is just hyperbole or, or what's true, what's not. But apparently, William Lumley believed that Lovecraft's creations were real. Yeah. <laughs> and that Lovecraft, not without even his own knowledge, was right. actually doing the bidding of these of Cthulhu and, and Nyarlathotep and, and sort of channeling their messages into this fiction. Yeah, there's a quote here where um, Lovecraft says in a letter, <laughs> talking about Lumley, uh, he says, we may think we're writing fiction and may even, absurd thought, disbelieve what we write, but at the bottom, we are telling the truth in spite of ourselves, serving unwittingly as the mouthpieces of Sathagua, Krom, Cthulhu, and other pleasant outside gentry. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy, the poor, I mean, and, and Lovecraft did this rewrite for him just to kind of get him into writing, and I'm not quite mm. sure why he didn't do it for money he just did it for free but then freaking um lumley went around and sold it to weird tales for 75 bucks and didn't cut lovecraft in on it at all (laughs) yeah i don't know if i think lovecraft didn't even want the money i don't i don't know i think he's just being kind you know he clearly from his letters lovecraft thinks that lumley's kind of a chump yeah but he's just such a sweet guy and so eager that he likes him yeah. So I, I think in that letter he says, I don't even, I don't like to make fun of him, even yeah. though he had just been making fun of him. The whole letter. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that somebody, even in Lovecraft's lifetime, acted this way. It's just that I've never had a lot of love for 
oh, all of this is real. You know, like I've never yeah. read an Agatha Christie novel and thought, you know, I bet she murders people. You know what I mean? Like I'm able to, <laughs> I'm able to, yeah, understand that. Well, that's funny that you say that people because are creative. Lumley liked to say, well, he said that he visited China and Nepal and did all this sort of occult investigation himself. But in reality, he was a, a watchman for the Agrico Chemical Company in Buffalo for his entire life. Like that was his Aww. his job. He was a, a security guard. See, that and, makes me really like him, too. <laughs> you know, dude, I worked as a security guard for a little while. And oh, I got to tell right. you, yeah, yeah. When I was in Pittsburgh and um, it's. It's a sh- it's a crap job, and you just either walk around by yourself or you sit around by yourself. But on a rare occasion, there's two security guards together in the same spot. And one mm-hmm. night, it was really cold. It was in the winter in Pittsburgh, and you know there's a ton of snow on the ground. And this guy who I was partnered up with was a World War II vet. So this was in oh. this must have been the summer of '92. It was the summer of '90 yeah. or not when summer. It was the winter. It was the winter of '92. 9192 and he told me all of these crazy pacific cuz he found the pacific stories mm-hmm. about how you know there was this him and this guy Chickbone were the only survivors in his in his platoon you know because they kept yeah. bringing new guys in it was it was really creepy but his stories were pretty fantastic and i'm not sure how much of his world war 2 stories were actually true like he said sure. there was this one japanese soldier that was on opium that he shot with his rifle 17 times before the guy dropped. Oh, my God. Now, I don't know about you, but in the heat of battle, do you think that you're really counting how many shots that you're firing? Like, especially when it gets above three or four? Uh, I doubt that you're counting. I mean, although later you could probably... That's true. That's true. Maybe know he, how many you shot. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe he had to change his magazine so many times and he figured it out. Yeah. But... Uh, Even so, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, I could... I could picture working with Bill Lumley here and thinking, yeah. you know, him telling all these stories. Oh, when I went to China, I met with this uh, Tibetan monk. Yeah, man. you know, you got a point there. <laughs> I worked at a warehouse with a guy that was full of tall tales <laughs> uh-huh. about his exploits while he would deliver, like, candy bars to the ice cream place in town. And he said that the girl there, would every time she saw him, she'd close up shop and, like, they'd go into the back. And there's no way this was happening. It was, like, a 16-year-old go- girl and this guy had, like, no teeth and just had <laughs> mustache. And, but... <laughs> I mean, any time that me or my buddy Lyle got to go on a, a trip with him on a delivery, we took that chance because his stories were crazy. <laughs> they weren't attached to reality in any way, shape, or form. <sighs> this guy was like, everywhere he went, women just took their shirts off to flash him. Every, never When I was with him, this never happened. Apparently my presence, you know, well, was messing j- up his. You had teeth, dude. <laughs> It was the team that scared off the ladies. This character of Lumley is, is coming into more focus for me, and I like him more and more. You were speaking uh, that this character doesn't seem like a typical Lovecraft character. So maybe right. from Lumley's very rough story, Lovecraft took that from it. And I think that's what it is, right? He, he wrote this, Lovecraft saw it and said, oh, come on, buddy, you, you should do this and that. And he tried to help him out. Yeah, exactly. Because definitely this is Lovecraft's writing. The, and, and when we get to the end, we'll talk about how it, well, it's, I'm not going to even wait till the end. He comes to this, <laughs> he wants to go check yeah, out Yeah, why don't we home. just blow through this thing real quick? So we know from the beginning that Alonzo, he's going to stay overnight in a haunted house. Actually, much longer than overnight. He's going, he's been on the, the track of all these primordial mysteries and he's coming here to this old uh, house just yeah. to stay and learn. Yeah, the Vander, the Vander Heels house. 
house. And this introduction in the beginning, the editor's note, gives some background on it and how this, this family was from Albany. And they, they moved from Albany in 1746 because they were supposedly, they were witches and they were evading being prosecuted by the Puritans and right, all that right. stuff. So and then so they, they built this house around They built this house. Yeah. And, and then it's around the house, a little village popped up, right? Right. The village that arose around this mansion got the name Churizen. I can't, I look, every time I look at the word, I think chorizo. Chorazin? I'll say chorazin, sure. Okay. Uh, maybe it's Corazine or something like that, but I'm going to uh-huh. say chorazin. Behind the village, which you can see from the Vanderheil house, is a steep hill that has this ring of ancient standing stones. Yeah. That yeah. the Iroquois, don't, they, you know, they didn't like, and we don't know where those came from. So the house has only been around since 1760, still old, but there's this far more ancient structure up on that hill. Yeah. And we know from the preface to the diary as well that around 1872, the entire household of Vanderheil's servants, everybody, suddenly and simultaneously disappeared. Just gone. Now this guy John Eagle in yeah. the current day, really funny description of John Eagle. It says John Eagle, the Indian-like villager who found the diary. Uh, his name's John Eagle. I don't think he's Indian-like. You know? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they said a lot of Indian people settled around Shirazin, so there's sort of it's mixed. It's Indian and, yeah. and white people mixed. And probably some slaves as well. Right. I, I forgot to mention in that opening sentence it says Alonzo Typer was last seen and recognized on April 17th. I thought last seen and recognized was such a cool, cool phrase. You know, people will always say so-and-so was last seen. Oh, right. It's more correct to say he was last seen and recognized because exactly. people that don't know who you are will see you and it's of no significance to them. Exactly. But it's also slightly sinister for a Lovecraft story because it, the minute I read that, I go, oh, so did he go into somebody else's body? <laughs> or did, you know, <laughs> did he jump through time? I mean, it just set up an expectation for me that didn't right. pay off, but I still thought it was a neat bit of free. No, this was another story for me that I was really into um, the setup of it and I was really interested and mm-hmm. I was curious about the mystery of it. And then when we got into the actual meat of it, I was pretty disappointed. Yeah, yeah. One last thing in the preface to the diary that I really liked in terms of writing, it said, those who first opened the vault, this is a vault where they found this diary of Alonzo after he had disappeared. Those who first opened the vault declared that the place smelled like the snake house at a zoo. Yeah, that was good. I like that. Really good. So specific. I almost wish that it wasn't, because I know that they have the suggestion that the family was subtly squamous, you know. Yeah, kind of serpentine. Yeah. Yeah. But even if it wasn't related, that's just, it's so specific. It's yeah. and you might not know that smell, but if you do, it's like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> it's that yeah. hot kind of it, it doesn't quite smell like manure, but it's some kind of It's very kind of acidic smelling. Yeah, yeah. Poo smelling. It's it's gross. <laughs> but one thing one thing that we failed to mention is that the house has collapsed. It's a big pile of rubble after it's been investigated by Typer. Well Typer went to go check it out and then mm-hmm. the whole place collapsed. He was nowhere to right. be found. His body's nowhere to be found. Just this book. His diary. And in the diary, it starts on April 17th, 1908, when he arrives at the house. And he knows that he's about half, I don't know, two weeks away from Walpurgis Nacht, which is when he thinks this house is going to be at its most potent spiritually or or whatever. And that's the May Eve. That's before the spring equinox. Yeah, last last day of April. He gets in there. The the place is very creepy, very scary. There's lots of description. He he says the few inhabitants of the town are no better than idiots. Um, (laughs) One of them saluted him in a queer way as if he knew me. Yeah. He keeps mentioning how things are very familiar, and, and I was like, God, oh, jeez. <laughs> Again? <laughs> I bet you're related to these people, right? I mean, yeah. you know, that's yeah, that's right. right away. Uh, he gets into the house. He unpacks. He, he gets his uh, his video cameras and his EVP recorders and his uh, He doesn't get any of those things. He doesn't Chad. have any of those things. It's ni- but he goes upstairs. <laughs> he gets a front room, and he camps out. And he starts to feel crazy things right away. On his first day, he's got a journal entry that says, uh, I am conscious of several presences in this house. 
one in particular is decidedly hostile toward me, a malevolent will which is seeking to break down my own and overcome me. I must not countenance this for an instant, but must use all my forces to resist it. It is appallingly evil and definitely non-human. I think it must be allied to powers outside Earth, powers in the spaces behind time and beyond the universe. It towers like a colossus, bearing out what is said in the Aklo writings. There is such a feeling of vast size connected with it that I wonder if these chambers can contain its bulk. And yet it has no visible bulk. Its age must be unutterably vast, shockingly, indescribably so. What's that reference to the Aklo writings? Have we discussed that before on the show? I think we have. Uh, well, Lovecraft uses it. He used it before also in uh, Dunwich Horror. Uh, Wilbur Watley was uh, mm. doing some Aklo. But it was originally Arthur Mackin and the white people that talked about the language Aklo being spoken by these yeah. by the white people who are... We have to and it's, it's just a language. It's an ancient language that yes. a lot of these things yeah. are written in. Spells mm-hmm. and that kind Supernatural of thing. language of some kind, yeah. The next day, Alonzo didn't sleep very well. The next day... As he's walking down the stairs, he feels like he's pushed from behind. Mm-hmm. And it could be by the wind, but when he turns, he sees the dissolving outlines of a gigantic black paw, which just made me laugh out loud. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I just, that, it, it made it me just, think of uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs under the pyramids. It did. Yeah, it made me think of that. I guess it also made me think of just a gigantic black paw and just kind of what a ridiculous <laughs> image that is, you know, ghostly black paw. Because is it like a Wait, cat's paw you, where it's got yeah, little pads on it? that's what I was it? just going to ask you. Were you thinking of it like a little, little kitty paw, like a giant kitty paw, but, or were you thinking of it like just sort of a monster, long-fingered claw paw? Uh, I was thinking paw? of, yeah, all of those things. A bear claw? Would be funny if it was just a little tiny uh kitten's paw it wasn't even actually gigantic at all (laughs) what's that on my neck tiny little paw well he uh he's exploring the house he sees you know the the portraits of all of the family disturb Mm -hmm. him yeah yeah Uh, they're all really creepy and he kind of goes through them he has he not his knowledge of this history and he keeps referring to this um person v v blank and we don't ever know who v is but v had some information about this house uh and told him about this family he says he looks at a portrait of that frightful hybrid joris spawned in 1773 by dirk's youngest daughter i like sentences like that because i expected there to be a follow-up some explanation and there wasn't all we know is that there was some guy named joris and he's a hybrid of some kind a hybrid yeah it's like a hybrid of what does that mean mixed race or does or does it mean like mixed species is that because they keep talking about in the story how uh, they have sort of serpentine qualities to them in portraits. So they're painted these ways. And he talks about w- one of the portraits where the artists obviously try to make them as human looking as possible. Right. Later, he says something like that, which is human is more horrible than that, which is non-human. You know, so even though there's like non-human expressions in these people, it's it's what's human about them that's more horrifying. That's more creepy. Yeah. That, yeah. That freaks them out. It's good writing. Yeah. Um, Another thing about the portraits that made me laugh is there was a part where it talks about a woman from the late 18th century, and it said, the faces of classic beauty, yet with the most fiendishly evil expression. Not merely callousness, greed, and cruelty, but some quality hideous beyond human comprehension. Can you convey all that in one expression? That's pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) While I I was reading it, I was screwing up my face trying to get, like, how could I convey greed, cruelty, (laughs) I wish you were recording that. I wish that I could see you... (laughs) 
attempting to capture that expression. But he also discovers behind the, the the wall a secret passageway that leads down to the basement. It's just sort of a there's no steps to it. It's just sort of a like shoot kind of a stone yeah. shoot. And he's like, what can that be for? Doesn't laundry know. must be laundry. He he spends a lot of time setting up atmosphere and that sort of thing. But he gets down to the cellar. That's what yeah. He gets down to the, the cellar. There's this big heavy iron door with a big padlock on it. It's a vault, a big vault. Yeah, and he thinks he hears something in the vault like something big moving around like a, a mm-hmm. like a like he says like it would be a giant snake just kind of pushing up and sliding up on against it and he's also compelled to open it up for some reason he doesn't know why it's all familiar blah 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 because obviously right. he's descended from these people and we're not going to pretend that we don't know what's going to happen uh, <laughs> he goes at night I'm just going to I'm going to go to sleep and not worry about it but then we get the next journal entry and he says well you know I couldn't sleep so I had to go down and, and check it out some more that's yeah. where all the creepy things were going to happen and that's when he he really hears it, but then that claw thing comes up from behind him again, and there's a bunch of this. It goes on and on. Time. There's a cool yeah. when he talks about that that sound behind the vault door. He says there was a damnable slithering as of a vast serpent or sea beast dragging its monstrous folds over a paved floor. That really creeps me out. There's some good bits in here. There's some good writing. And I feel like maybe Lovecraft took a crappy idea and, and just sort of sweetened it a bit. I don't want to linger on this too much. We're kind of skipping around. But when he's down in that in that cellar, he finds a number of Lovecraftian tomes. Right. right. Yeah, and he starts flipping through them. A Greek Necronomicon, the Norman mm-hmm. French uh, uh, Le Vrai d'Ebon, Disfirmus yeah, Mysterious, yeah. all that Book jazz. Book of Ebon, no. yeah. And, yeah, you know, they're all from Holland, so some of them must be written in the Dutch language. <laughs> No, and he talks about um, at this. Well, he point finds too, a drawing there too, right? Oh, right. That well, that's the kind of a big deal. It's, he describes the drawing as being a, a squid-like creature, but mm-hmm. also that it's got great yellow eyes and it has some kind of human form to it. So that makes me think it's he's throwing in some Cthulhu. Right. And he also mentions that one of the descriptions talks about all these old civilizations, and one of them is Yan Ho. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if you remember from Through the Gates of the Silver Key. But Yan Ho was the forbidden city in the, on the plateau of Lang. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I didn't make that connection when I was reading. Good bit of writing here. That's that's really a good example of of Lovecraft. After he's been reading all of these things and learning, he says, "Truly, there are terrible primal arcana of Earth, which had better be left unknown and unevoked. Dread secrets which have nothing to do with man, and which man may learn only in exchange for peace and sanity." cryptic truths which make the knower evermore an alien among his kind and cause him to walk alone on earth. Likewise are there dread survivals of things older and more potent than man, things that have blasphemously straggled down through the aeons to ages never meant for them, monstrous entities that have lain sleeping endlessly in incredible crypts and remote caverns outside the laws of reason and causation, and ready to be waked by such blasphemers as shall know their dark forbidden signs and furtive passwords. That's that's great. Yeah, good stuff. Now there's an Evil Dead kind of thing that happens to the protagonist when he tries to leave the house, right? He uh, goes outside and all the briars that had been surrounding the place have closed. He can't get out. Yeah, none of the, the, the roads, the pathways, all of them, they're all gone. However, the path to that hill where the standing stones are, the briars will give way before him, but in that direction only. Yeah. That was a really neat detail, too. It's super cool stuff. What's Alonzo's plan? He's learned a lot about this family. 
this name keeps coming up, by the way, when he's researching the family, right? Slate. Yeah. And he goes, it's uh, familiar. Why is it familiar to me? I don't yeah. know. And I rolled my eyes. I mean, immediately I go, it's familiar to you because it's a family name. And you're related <laughs> to these people. It's, you know, come on. But what's his plan? What's going to happen? I mean, let's let's get to the end of this thing. The gist of it is he, feel, he feels compelled to find out what's in this vault and to understand these secrets. And he knows that there's a key somewhere in the house. And he's compelled to find the key. And he finds the key. And he's going to open up the vault. And Yeah, it reminded me of a video game a little bit. You must find the key. Right. Yeah, and he searches around the house. There's lots of locked doors in this place. And it comes to April 30th. It's Walpurgis Eve. Yes. He's ready to go. What he's he's basically got some kind of ritual he's going to do or uh, yeah. chant. It's a chant, right? He's learned this chant from the books, and it's going to wake up whatever this thing is in the vault. There's like a god or a, some kind of monster or, or gatekeeper yeah. of some kind. And he knows the chant, and if he says the chant, he'll wake it up. And then he also has some words he's learned, the seven lost signs of terror, the words of fear. They don't really tell you what those are. No. But he thinks if he has those, he can... Fight back, whatever it fight is. Fight back, or bind the thing, yeah. or, or something along those lines. But of course, um, that's not what's going to happen. We all under... I mean, I, it seemed really obvious to me what, what was going to happen. And he finds out that right as he's going to perform this... this uh, this ritual that the townspeople sort of all come around and he could see them. There's a big storm going on. There's lightning, you know, all, all this. And he could see that the, they're, they're all gathering around to kind of be a part of this or observe this big ritual. Yeah. They're out there chanting. Yeah. Shibnagorath, the goat with a thousand young, all yeah. that stuff. But that's not what bothers him. No. The most. But the worst thing is within the house. Even at this height, I have begun to hear sounds from the cellar. It is the padding and muttering and slithering and muffled reverberations within the vault. Memories come and go. That name of Adrian Slate pounds oddly at my consciousness. Dirk Vanderheil's son-in-law, his child, old Dirk's granddaughter, and Abaddon Corey's great-granddaughter. Merciful God. At last I know where I saw that name. I know and am transfixed with horror is lost. The key has begun to feel warm as my left hand nervously clutches it. At times, that vague quickening or pulsing is so distant that I can almost feel the living metal move. It came from Yan Ho for a terrible purpose, and to me has descended the hideous task of fulfilling that purpose. My courage and curiosity wane. I know the horror that lies beyond that iron door. What if Clyse Vanderhell was my ancestor? Need I expiate his nameless sin? I will not, I swear. I will not. Too late. Cannot help self. Black paws materialize. Dragged away toward the cellar. Dot dot dot. That's the end of the story. Hilarious ending. Yeah. He was still writing as the black paws were dragging him away. Apparently. Yeah. Too late. <laughs> I am. 
dragged away. I could, can you imagine that being is... pulled, dragged by a giant monster, and that that what you would be doing is trying to write in a journal? <laughs> I can't imagine it. No. Wait, my diary. No, just this last word. Oh, let me put the ellipses on the end here. I wanted to finish this sentence. People need to know that. <laughs> um, and we were jumping around in this thing, but but he kind of realized that his ancestor, who started this process of waking up the old one in the earth, mm-hmm. couldn't finish it in his lifetime. But because he had started it, he or one of his descendants was going to finish it. Yeah. It's sort of his ancestral duty he's compelled to do these things yeah uh, much like you know the protagonist of shadow over insmith is compelled to right. go home and, and that sort of thing so it's got all the lovecraftian tropes and a fairly unsatisfying end but i think there's a lot of good writing there is and, uh, good there examples is. of atmosphere building yeah absolutely i mean lovecraft's really uh, he's at his peak of his game right now and he's just was unfortunately wasn't writing big big stuff anymore because yeah. you know he's sick and getting close to to dying so he wasn't he wasn't feeling well he wasn't doing well he was just trying to get by and probably wasn't motivated to write really cool stories like he had a few years ago so mm-hmm. helping out people was just sort of what he was into and that's kind of the work that we've been seeing and we'll be seeing up until almost the very end yeah yeah so i don't know i liked it it was a fun read it was, yeah it's not not too long of a story and uh and made me laugh in equal parts shudder yeah, there's some creepy, good, creepy stuff in here. It's just the, it's the silly ending and the the giant paw stuff that we could really do without. <sighs> <sighs> All right, well, uh, we learned about rough trade today. That's really <laughs> the, the most important part. <laughs> we did learn about rough trade. Well, next week we are going to cover one which people keep asking us if we're going to cover in the walls of Eric's. Somebody asked us a trivia question a couple of years ago. What is the one? Lovecraft story that is the whole thing is set on another planet. And I it's had the story. no idea what he was talking about, but yeah. and he said, oh, it's in the walls of Eric's, but I haven't read it yet. So. I have not read it either, so I'm looking forward to I know this is a big one. I'm saving these last few Lovecraft stories, which are In the Walls of Eric's and uh, The Night Ocean, which I haven't read either. And yeah. and unfortunately, after that, all we have is The Haunter in the Dark. Yeah, we'll finish up with The Haunter of the Dark, and then yeah. um, you and I will do a couple of wrap-up episodes. Getting close to the end now. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to be out of town, right? So we're skipping a week. We're skipping a week, yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to just prolong the end just a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're taking a week off. I do want to remind folks, though, that I, again, on June 2nd, in Manchester at The Traveling Man, I will be do, doing a signing of the Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 by Self-Made Hero. Please come down at 1 o'clock. I'll be signing. Uh, 3 o'clock, there will be a talk that I'm doing. But also, all day at the store, they're going to be playing Lovecraft-themed board games. So, Elder Sign, uh, Arkham Horror, Mansions of Madness, all that type of stuff. It's going to be it's going to be a crazy Lovecraft day. Shoots and ladders. Shoots and ladders. What? No. Not shoots oh and ladders. Oh my god, I am hilarious. <sighs> All right. <laughs> Until next time, keep your feet on the ground and your head in the clouds. No, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back within the walls of Eric's in two weeks. Yes. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Thanks, Jason Lee, for doing such a great job reading. Very good. Uh, uh, obvious, obvious professional. That's right. Uh, and that's all we have. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Hppodcraft.com.